Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Petko Stoyanov. Pecco, hello, hello. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I, you know, I'm kind of. I love having authors today. Today, like one of the, I've read his books so many times, and it seems like it's. So, I'm almost a little giddy about this. So, do you want to introduce <laughs> our our guest today? Yes, yes. Me too. Me too. Okay. So, please welcome to the podcast, Peter Singer. Among his many achievements and accolades, he is a strategist at New America and at Useful Fiction LLC. He is managing partner. He is also. New York Times bestselling author, described by the Wall Street Journal as a premier futurist in national security environment. He's also been named by the Smithsonian as one of the nation's 100 leading innovators. By Defense News as one of the 100 most influential people in defense issues. By Foreign Policy to their top 100 global thinkers list. And my favorite, Mad Scientist for the U.S. Army's Training and Doctrine Command. And, and I do want to call out, I know we'll talk a little bit about like war. Sorry for the long introduction, but I, I, I love this quote from Book List. It should be required reading for everyone living in a democracy and all who aspire to. Uh, I mean, wow. Peter, welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much for the kind introduction and for having me on. So I would, could we start with some of these new endeavors that you have? Because I, I, I definitely want to dig into, you know, the, the books and, and your perspective on what's going on today. But I would like to kick off because I, I found what you're doing with um, the Share the Mic program and, and the fellowship. And, and I, would, I would love to kick off with that because I think this is such an important initiative. Oh, thanks. So, um, yeah, so I work at New America, one of the, my nonprofit hats, so to speak. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, New America is a um, nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank, uh, based in Washington, DC. And one of the things that I do there is sort of, you might think of as like entrepreneurial. And this, a lot of our conversation will be around that. And so, um, in this last year helped us start up a program that essentially is, taking a um, volunteer network to the next level. So uh, some folks who work in cybersecurity might be familiar with the Share the Mic and Cyber Movement, which was essentially started to help um, face issues of racism within uh, the cybersecurity community. Um, and also, how do we figure out how to um, uh, essentially lift up voices, diverse voices right. in our field. And um, what's happened next is um, we've created a project around it at New America. Um, we're pretty excited right now in that we just had a um, application process end um, where we're going to be bringing in right depending on when this podcast goes out, the announcement will happen. But um, essentially, we're going to announce um, seven uh, Share the Mic and Cyber fellows who will um, be essentially, you know, bringing in um, voices 
uh, and research from communities that are not typically well represented in our field. Uh, they're going to be working on topics that range from um, how uh, we've seen cyber threats in particular go after minority communities right. to um, someone doing some really cool work on um, how AI is um, being woven into disinformation campaigns. We're also, of course, going to have a series of um, events and the like. And basically the background of thinking about it is, um, one, there's the the, the value proposition, you know, why do you need a diversity in the field? Right. Um, and then there's a second, which is, okay, what is it that we're trying to do about it? Um, on the why, you know, people could have a whole conversation around the politics of it and how it's the right thing to do. But we can also just be very utilitarian about it and say, look, cybersecurity field one um, doesn't have enough people in it. And so if in general, if right. you are not pulling in um, from diverse communities, guess what? You're making that people problem uh, even worse. There's a second part, which is all the research shows that diverse teams are more effective yes. teams. Um, they bring in different insights. They bring in different perspectives. You can't come at a problem, whether it's a I'm writing software or I'm trying to understand a threat. You can't come at it with a bunch of like-minded, like-experienced people. That's just not, you know, again, we can point to Harvard business uh, studies on that and the like. So, you know, again, there's, there's the, it's the right thing to do, but it's also, if you just want to be very selfish about it, it's also the right thing to do. Um, what share the mic is, is that there've been a lot of efforts um, to go after this. Most of them have been um, focused on the early part of the pipeline. How do we draw people into the field? Um, how do we, for example, recruit at, um, uh, at universities and colleges to um, draw different people in? Right. That's great. They're phenomenal. What we're focused on is how do we support people already in the field? And so that's what the Share the Mic and Cyber program is all about. I can't tell you how... I just, I guess, energized I am to hear about this program. It's, you know, we, diversity of, of thinking is just absolutely critical to innovation. And, and you, you talk about, you know, you think of all the inherent bias, right? And, and if you don't have that diversity of thought as you're building things like AI and, um, you know, you can really, really create a lot of problems that are very long, long-term and, and reaching. I mean, Pecco, you, you know this, I mean, you're, you're a technology uh, guy, engineer. I mean, you, you can speak to this probably better than I can. Use the right word right there, diversity of thought. If we keep trying to you know, hire the same people with the same tools, everything, if, if, if all they have is a hammer, everything's going to look like it needs a hammer. So we need diversity of thought to solve different problems in different ways. And that means hiring differently. That means bringing in different backgrounds and just, you know, look at all the, it's kind of funny. Like when we look at cyber, we always want like the engineer or we want this. And then we find out some of the best open thinkers are folks who actually have a degree in music or they have a degree in philosophy or medieval history Russian studies <laughs> medieval yes. history yes exactly <laughs> so I, I love the fact that you're looking at it from a standpoint of not just the pipeline but there are folks who we have today that we have to bring in so a hundred percent and and the conversations that your campaigns have been leading i think are are fantastic I and mean, what's been some of the feedback to that 
So it's been really interesting. Um, the overall network just finished up its um, event series around, uh, as you and I are speaking, it's the very last day of October. We're all cyber aware now, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but uh, the um, we had an event around that that um, was um, framed around the theme of belonging. Uh, and so, you know, again, it's not just like, how do I draw people into the field? It's how do I make people who are in the field feel like that there's a place for them in it? Um, and that matters, you know, not only for, um, retention, um, you know, how do I keep people in the field, but also of course, um, it circles back to the recruiting issue, you know, um, are people going to want to go into the field that they don't um, see others in thriving? So mm-hmm. there was um, a variety of events. And then also one of the things in Share the Mic is that you, you pair up uh, voices with, you know, large social media um, following. And then uh, they exchange with um, uh, people from diverse communities and highlight them. And um, the numbers on it were amazing. Mm-hmm. There was um, over 40 million, um, you know, basically people. Uh, clicking on seeing um, content uh, related to share the mic and cyber, which I mean, you know, 40 million is good on any topic. Wow, it's yes. really good on cybersecurity. <laughs> um, and I think it points to um, there's something here. And so again, that's the overall network. And then what we're doing at New America um, is the next stage of it, which is, you know, how do we take this network and turn it into something kind of more permanent right. and also support individual research, um, individual people that are creating projects, event series. Um, it's been awesome. And then we're of course doing it with a series of partners, um, that have ranged from big to small tech firms, um, to, uh, nonprofits. And so I'd say, Mm -hmm. you know, if anybody's interested in, um, linking up with the program, uh, you know, please follow up at, um, share the mic and cyber at new America, and, and you'll be able to find it via, um, you know, all the different tools. Are we allowed to say you can Google it? Um, and so, uh, again, absolutely. We'll include a link, Peter. Um, we can absolutely include a link that link to it. Cause this is so important. I, I love this so much. And again, I'm excited by, um, what are going to be the products of the research. So, you know, we've right. got these folks that are joining, um, you know, they're going to spend the next several months doing everything from the research to creating projects. So there's a mix of like academics to government policy people, to people with business backgrounds. And then along the way, uh, there's going to be professional development um, offerings for them. So the idea is that you get the fruits of the work um, probably coming out, you know, it, they'll be joining in the fall. We'll get the fruits of it in the spring, but also they'll get some, um, you know, long-term career aid, hopefully. We'll have to follow up and see what the outcome is. I'm Absolutely. kind of curious. For yeah, research. yeah. Um, and I, and I love that you're putting in there the the government policy aspect because it, it it seems like you really can't have these kind of initiatives without that element today. Otherwise, how do you how do you really facilitate change or help drive change? Yeah. yeah. And again, it, you know, it points to the very nature of this field. Right. Um, you can't, you know, and this is what Petco is talking about, you know, coming at it from different perspectives, one of which is, you know, you've got to come at it from the perspective of policy, from the perspective of um, the corporate side and also mm-hmm. the research side, you know, it's got to be bringing and oh, by the way, the 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 broader community around it. So, you know, to right. put it differently, um, tell me a cybersecurity problem that's only about the dot com right. or about the dot gov or right, about right. the dot org or the dot edu. Yeah. You want them all in there. 
<laughs> well, here, let's take that a little broader. Tell me one that's only within the U.S., that's only within a certain country. Like, there is no bingo. boundaries. Yeah, bingo. Or at least if it's um, – it might be something that's playing out in – you know, it's about a U.S. government policy or something like that. Yeah. But um, even in that, you want to learn from other nations. You know, so how have other nations done it well? How have they done it poorly? Um, rather than looking at everything in, in isolation. Absolutely. Um you know, I, not to dominate the common conversation here, Petco, but I, I do want to dig in into like war, um, you know, but and and also kind of how it dovetails in what we've seen in Ukraine and Russia, but also more broadly speaking, as folks like Elon Musk, you know, uh, they purchased Twitter, um, you know. But I guess my first question out of the gate, though, to kind of dovetail into all of this, Peter, is: Does a cyber war ever end? <laughs> um. Does it ever begin? Actually? So, <laughs> a, a, a war. Um, it it's like any other um, relationship. Um, it depends on both parties agreeing that it ends. Um, right. So, if you think about it, you know, someone can say, "I break up with you," and the other person in their mind could still be like, "We're dating and still exactly. acting inappropriately or whatnot." <laughs> so, it's the same thing um, in you know, a, not just a, a cyber war, but a, right. a traditional war. It's both the winner um, winning, but it also depends on the loser agreeing that I have lost and, and hostilities right. have ended and I will not, you know, do my best to um, keep this going. So, um, you know, one, we got to go back to like, what's the definition of cyber war? And that's a well, whole yes. broader debate. Yes. Um, Peter Singer's definition of it is that uh, it turns on how we think about traditional war, which mm -hmm. is that um, it's what brings together politics and violence. That's what distinguishes, you know, um, murder from um, in war. Uh, the act of killing. It's that dose of politics. In turn, there's a variety of things that um, might be political in nature, but don't reach the level of war because they don't involve that mass violence part. So on cyber war, it's, you know, we're bringing in the digital element to add to politics and violence. And so then we can have a broader conversation around, you know, there's the, the formal definition of cyber war. Um, arguably, we really haven't seen it yet. Um, versus the broader way we use the term war, you know, cold war, war on terrorism, right? It's sort of a state of broad conflict. And that we've definitely seen. Um, and obviously, you know, we can have a, you, you mentioned Ukraine, um, we can have a longer conversation around, um, you know, Russia, the, it's cyber warfare towards not just Ukraine, but, um, you know, democracies around the world right. didn't start uh, a couple of months ago, you know, what, what it's done in Ukraine has been, you know, it's building upon um, what it's done more broadly, just like, uh, you know, frankly, you know, a Ukrainian would say, yeah, the, the war with Russia didn't start in 2022. You know, we were invaded, um, you know, back in 2014. Right. So, uh, again, it's it's part of this. You know, people want to kind of have debates around the meaning of terms. Right. But I think we know what we're what we what we mean when we right. say, you know, cyber warfare in Russia. We're talking about not Russian cyber criminals trying to rob banks. We're talking about Russian government using a variety of state and non-state, including even criminals, to um, attack other actors for primarily political reasons. I'm curious yeah. on the definition of cyber war, just because 
I, I kind of I go using that example you had about the dating, you know, you're breaking up, it's over. I also think, you know, at some point one side becomes passive aggressive usually. And, and you start feeling it. And it's almost the same way with cyber. One side starts attacking first. You just don't realize it before you say it's a war. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving that example of like it's a illustration of a horribly toxic relationship, right? You know, one side says we're, we're broken up. And the other's like, no, we're not. And here's all the awful things that I'm going to do to make sure, right? That's that's kind of what I was going after there, maybe in a, uh, a not so perfectly phrased way. But it's the idea of um, it just doesn't war just doesn't end, it involves the two sides um, agreeing that it's over. And then the danger to continue with that, that parallel is like, what if one side says, no, it's not. And then basically starts doing all these other, you know, using other means parallel here in cyber. Um, And then we've got also what I'm trying to get at is um, also kind of the norms and the laws. So there is, um, in warfare, there are things that you can do that no one is happy about, but, you know, um, the two sides are at war with each other. They, it is, um, not seen as inappropriate that one side drops a bomb on the other side. That's what happens in war. If both sides are, are, you know, engaged in war, but what happens when it's one side engaging in war and it's the other side that is not, right? So then we are not in a formal agreed upon state of conflict, but one side is still using the tools of war. Again, trying to make that parallel to like human relationships. One side is like, we are not dating. And the other side is, well, I'm still going to do all these things that um, I'm still calling you up. I'm still whatever, right? And so it's the parallel here of like, when we think about the longer context of, um, we'll, we'll use right now, Ukraine and Russia are very clearly at conflict. And so when Ukraine hacks Russia and Russia hacks Ukraine, no one goes, oh my gosh, you know, hacking is off limits. However, when it was, you know, before, or if it will use Russia going after critical infrastructure in um, uh, states that aren't a party to the conflict, Mm -hmm. um, targeting critical infrastructure, um, we've seen this maybe in Norway and the pipeline. That's like, whoa, no, 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 no. That's not within the agreed upon norms and even laws of um, conflict. And so there's that mutuality is what I was trying to get at. So, so on the other means, I want to think it's that because it almost reminds me of, you know, I might not be directly attacking you, but I might be using social media to attack you. And I, th- and I think that's the premise of the like war is mm-hmm. they might be attacking us, but we're not acknowledging it and they're doing it in other ways. What lessons have you are you seeing that's coming out of like the Ukraine war when it comes to social media and others? Sure. So the, the Light War Project was um, actually a book that Emerson Brooking and I started uh, many years back. Um, and essentially, uh, we started out trying to figure out how um, social media was being used in conflict zones. And remember, this is, you know, it's back in time, you know, social media originally was supposed to be this sort of light, airy um place originally for fun and then it becomes for profit and um there's this attitude towards it that you know it can therefore only be for the good and and the the creators the tycoons behind it well they're only for the good um you know my how things have changed right and so uh the the book um essentially came to the conclusion that if we thought of 
back to um, what Rachel asked about cyber war as, you know, all about the hacking of networks, it now had an evil twin and we called it like war. And like war was about hacking people on the networks by driving ideas viral through their likes, their shares, um, but also often their lies. And um, much like on cyber uh, in, in terms of kind of the traditional side, and it's funny to say that, but, you know, we, we really need to accept that, you know, we've been at the cybersecurity field now for about two generations, right? But, um, you know, much like on the cybersecurity side, um, it's really about the real world impact, right? So mm -hmm. you're, you're breaking into a network to um, steal banking information because you want to make money out of it, right? Um, same thing, you're driving ideas viral because you want to have some kind of effect on the world. And it might be a positive effect, um, ice bucket challenge. Right. Um, it might be a negative effect, uh, ISIS propaganda. And so that's what the, the book was all about and understanding the rules of it. And yeah, you've hit it. Um, Ukraine, um, it's, it's been woven into it in nearly every way. Um, I think what's interesting is how the lessons from the social media weaponization side has actually kind of paralleled what's played out on both the cybersecurity side and also on the conventional war side. Um, and bluntly, uh, Russia um, flailed because it tried to fight the last war where it was pushing against an open door to turn it into a rhyme. So um, that was the case on the conventional military side. Mm -hmm. um, the types of operations that were easy for it in 2014 um, were not easy in 2022 because the Ukrainians had planned for it, had equipped for it, had trained for it. They were ready. Um, same thing on the cybersecurity side. There's been a lot of discourse around, oh, you know, Ukraine shows that cyber doesn't matter. That's absurd. I mean, it'd be like saying in, in World War II, like, oh, the Germans, you know, didn't win the Battle of Britain, so it shows planes don't matter. No, you know, they had a whole bunch of back and forth with planes. Same thing here on the cyber side. They have massive amounts of cyber back and forth. It's because, um, you know, much like on the conventional side, Putin, um, not all, you know, they were using old approaches. Putin set his own team up for a fall because he, you know, kind of caught him by surprise and trying to keep the operation secret. Um, but also the Ukrainians were ready. And oh, by the way, they were ready because um, they were getting aid from the U.S. government as well as corporations that they weren't getting in prior years. Right. And it's the same thing on the, the social media weaponization side where, you know, the story has been Russia trying lots of different operations, flailing at it. And actually, it's the reverse where Zelensky and the Ukrainians are the ones that, you know, basically turn the tables on the, the supposed Russian masters of information warfare. And they do it by following, you know, all the lessons that we had in the, in the like war book. Um, and it isn't like that we came up with the lessons. It's these lessons that, you know, actors that range from, um, ISIS to Taylor Swift were using, you can see each one of them replicated in what um, Zelensky and the broader Ukrainian side is doing. You know, it's about pre-bunking rather than 
letting the other side drive the conversation. So you, you pre-bunk rather than try and respond and debunk. Um, you see it in um, having multiple narratives rather than just trying to push one story. The Ukrainians have pushed stories that range from um, uh, stories of Ukrainian um, Davids fighting against the Russian Goliath to stories of martyrs, to stories of another part is that you want to build out your network and build out a, um, a shared coalition. So much of what Ukraine has done has not just been about we're the victim. It's here's how you can join us too. Um, it's um, a big one, authenticity. Um, you know, social media is a strange place where everything's curated and yet authenticity is the coin of the realm. And so what I mean by that is on one hand, um, it's your Instagram, it's your TikTok of you and your home. Um, that's really you. On the other hand, well, it's you after doing three takes with it. It's you doing it with the right angle. But the point is, it's really, really you. And I mean, Zelensky's a master at this where it's like, here I am out in the, the, the front line with my soldiers. Here I am out in the streets while the Russians are striking it. And of course, you know, another part I'll just end here is um, about, um, it's also about contrasts. And so it's not just Zelensky showing here I am. It's by contrast, you know, Putin, I mean, he's, you know, the, it comes across looking old, um, distant. Uh, he's, he's sitting at the end of this absurdly long table, scared of his own generals. And that's one, I, I can't help myself, but another one that's really effective in um, social media is mockery. And again, you know, turning things into a joke and the Ukrainians and the, you know, there's broader kind of meme networks around this have basically, you know, flipped the table. And it's not just because people like sharing jokes. It also has a narrative goal, which is um, the idea of surrendering, of giving up to a side that you've turned into the butt of the joke. It becomes unthinkable. And the Ukrainians have been able to do that, too. Yeah, They've, it's it's been fascinating to watch just them tapping into that. And I know Zelensky's got, um, you know, a number of younger folks within his cabinet, his broader cabinet, who have also been you know, 32 years old and, you know, reaching out and, and leveraging Twitter for, for maximum impact. Um, you know, which kind of, I don't know, naturally leads me to this whole Elon Musk and, and Twitter, uh -oh. Twitter, Twitter purchase uh -oh. that that's uh, that's happening today. And, you know, I was reading some articles yesterday and today and that he posted something that linked to a fake, fake, quote unquote, news site. And, um, you know, Twitter, Twitter as a channel has been very, very powerful, uh, I would say, for, you know, propagating certain narratives. And, and how do you see that changing or, or does it? Uh, with this latest development and ownership change. So Elon Musk is a internet troll enabled by money. Some of it due to his own creativity and skill. Right. Some of it due to the timing that he lucked into. Some of it due to the hard work of others that he often takes credit for. And a lot of it due to the U.S. government, which ironically he consistently talks about as um, being oppositional to, but he's dependent on taxpayer money from you and I. Right. So he's an internet troll enabled by money who is now in over his head in a business and a legal and policy environment that he cannot just bluster and tech bro his way out of. 
hopefully that gives you a nice summary of um, <laughs> where I see this. Right. And so yes. um, we can, you know, t- turn, we can deepen it on everything from, uh, you know, the, the model of being a um, internet troll. I say something blustersome to draw attention and then I go, ah, I was just kidding and I'm the victim. How dare you attack me? Um, and, you know, that has worked. But now that you are um, the owner of the company that's responsible right. for it, you see, ooh, hold it. Whoa. Hold. And we saw this, you know, he um, pushed out. Uh, a very clear and frankly kind of hateful falsehood in the wake of a violent attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, then he, very different than the, and this is the thing with, you know, trolls when they get, uh, he um, takes it down without comment because previously he could have doubled down and argued about it. Whoa, hold it. Now I own the company to, um, we can talk about the business model side. Um, I, I don't care if you are the, the biggest fan of him in the world Um, I think we can all agree that, um, the price that he paid for this company based on what happened to the market is well over what it would have been. Um, and, uh, to the understanding it, you're not just going to be able to solve the problems and turn it into profit by saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to get rid of 75% of the people. Well, um, you know, uh, good luck. Somehow you're going to keep the 25% best. Um, that's not how it works. But more importantly is it's sort of this assumption that I understand the way I'm smarter than everybody else. Everybody in this company that's tried to do things, they, they don't un- understand. I get it. To the policy side, the um, very, very complex issues that surround um, uh, what's allowed or not, moderation policies, etc., to larger questions of, you know, he's got to figure out in the next couple of days, um, what's the company's stance on Section 230? Because it relates to um, Supreme Court cases. Again, you cannot just bluster your way around these. And um, it's going to be, uh, we'll just say, interesting to see. And that, of course, the interesting um, is, you know, what... Uh, Maybe he can um, somehow turn it into living up to the price that he bought it at. Very, very unlikely. Um, but, you know, he's rich enough that it, it I don't think will um, that won't harm his bottom line. I think a different question, again, policy environment, if we want to talk about um, what does it mean to have the owner of um, a incredibly important channel of communication uh, to be um, almost wholly beholden to China? an authoritarian regime for um, large amounts of his current uh, wealth. What I'm getting at there is much of his wealth is, um, you know, within Tesla. Mm -hmm. Um, The Chinese government has um, Tesla and therefore Musk um, buy the, and we won't use the the term on this podcast, but basically uh, buy a, at a change of mind, the Chinese government can um, essentially shut down uh, manufacturing yeah. as well. It's a key location for that company ever becoming profitable. Right. Um, so what does it mean to have a major communication network that an authoritarian regime that's, a, let's be honest, an adversary of the United States right. um, can apply pressure to the owner of it? Um, I could go on and on. Some really interesting questions to move forward. We'll just leave it as interesting. I'd be interested in seeing, I mean, if we get an unlike button, I'm kind of looking forward to that. <laughs> but I'll, I'll just ingest, you know, but definitely interesting. You, you know, just bringing it back to this. Well, but again, there, there's an there's a example of like something that 
um, you know, has been floated, but then people who actually like, you know, the, and this is not knocking you, Patrick, it's like, you know, this is, it, it, there's actually teams of people within these corporations that explored that, that tested that. And they found, you know, guess what, what, what will happen is that it gets weaponized, right? That people, you know, um, brigade up to put, to, you know, dislike things. Sambo, and so, yeah. you know, there's reasons, stuff that, that he would float as if like, oh, we could just do this, you know, I'm going to deal with the bots, you know, like, you don't think like teams of really smart engineers and or lawyers that wrestled with it um, didn't look at this. And, you know, and there's a funny thing of like, I'll just, you know, the other funny thing is he, um, you know, fired some, the, the legal team from Twitter, which actually just kicked his ass in court, which is why he had to buy the company at such a higher amount. Remember, he tried to get out of it. You'd think he'd say, wow, those lawyers that beat me are better. I should keep them. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> I I wonder because this this is such a I mean, it's such a, a a difficult challenge that we're facing. I mean, how do you how do you get ahead of this? And I think about kind of the future of social media, Peter. And it, I'd be interested in your perspective here. I mean, do we see perhaps a, a movement ahead of people just kind of you know kind of sick of the trolls, sick of the hate, uh, the vitriol, and and we start moving into more when you talk about authenticity? Do we become like smaller private? you know, social groups, right? With people that we know and trust. And does that become a discourse in the years ahead versus these, you know, massive like TikTok and Twitter when you, you literally just don't know who you're engaging with. I mean, you, you really don't. Uh, and and yeah, the effort really to, to validate content, you know, I mean, I go to like five or six different sources that I quote unquote trust to validate something that I've read on Twitter. And that's, that's kind of crazy <laughs> or not. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great question. And, you know, um, I think we're only sort of right now figuring it out. Um, one, which I think you put your finger on is, is what's happening to social media, a lot like what happened to the overall internet where, right. you know, the idea was that originally it would be this, you know, massive ocean that we all, um, were connected into. And instead it's become a series of, um, uh, smaller lakes and ponds, you know, right. so you have the internet, but, um, the internet that you and I are on is a different one, so to right. speak, than what um, a billion people in China are on. Exactly. Um, the internet that, um, yes, uh, someone in Turkey is on the same internet, but because of the legal code, uh, what they can see, what they can post is different than you and I. So that's happened with the overall internet. And it seems to be the same thing is happening on the social media part of it. Um, some of it, as I mentioned, is because of that, um, the government intervention side. So, you know, one of the challenges we talked about, um, Ukraine and, um, Russia. So yes, Ukraine most definitely won the battle of narrative, um, within Ukraine. Zelensky was able to, um, essentially, uh, he was at a 23% level of popularity, um, at the start of the war. He's at a 91% level of popularity within Ukraine. Um, he was able to rally his own nation, but even more importantly, he was able to rally, you know, gain support, um, you know, hashtag support Ukraine, I stand with Ukraine, all that goes viral. And that's why nations, governments everywhere from not just the US, but to Japan to Australia are sending aid to Ukraine. Right. On the other hand, I stand with Ukraine is not trending on VK inside Russia, right. because VK, the more popular social media platform is, you know, controlled by government intervention. So you've got that. But then I think what you're putting your finger on is that 
The same thing may be happening to the platforms within due to um, kind of natural generational changes, what people are looking for, but also politics, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as much as he wished, um, uh, you know, Facebook um, is out there, it's still incredibly popular, but it's popular among a certain set of people for a certain set of things. I'll be blunt, um, you know, my observation, it tends to be mostly uh, for older um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of sharing of, um, pictures with your grandparents. Um, and then yes, the grandparents get their political news and misinformation from it by contrast. Um, you know, yes, you have Twitter, but you also had, you know, creation of everything from truth social to, right. um, people are on Instagram more for, um, and TikTok more for video and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and so each one is sort of starting to reflect, um, what people are looking for. And they also are um, reacting to kind of the political tenor of it. I think the worry for Musk on Twitter is that it has been primarily um, a rapid news source. Right. Um, its impact on the world has mostly been from um, – because that's where journalists are getting right. their news. That's where we get the, the by the minute yes. and other people kind of comment on the news. Over the last four or five years – Twitter um, essentially did a, a fairly good job of um, moderating out the um, the worst of the worst, uh, the neo Nazis. Um, remember, there was one point in time where like ISIS was all over Twitter. Right. I mean, and so uh, if Musk um, allows that back in, a lot of people are going to say, you know what, I didn't, I didn't want to be on Parlor, I didn't want to be on Truth Social. Um, I'm going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's they just only want to go somewhere, you know, happy and watch TikTok videos, or maybe something else comes along. You remember mm-hmm. MySpace once ruled the world. But right. I think, you know, what you're getting at is that it's kind of this um, mirroring of what happened to the overall internet seems to be happening a little bit with social media. And oh, by the way, that means the stock valuations or the, the profitability, if they're private of these companies, is a lot harder if you're not growing. If you can't dominate the world, um, you right. it's not the business that you know people hoped it would be. Yeah. Isn't social media like I mean, I've noticed that social media encourage you to, you know, stay informed, stay connected, like keep scrolling. You can never you know never get off it. So in almost the way it's feeding you data using AI in in order to keep you engaged. And I'm wondering like and, and that and that creates like an echo chamber if you think about it, because I like certain things. And I might connect with other people that like that thing. And I might stay engaged in that little echo chamber. And then mm-hmm. we end up, to Rachel's point, is we create little islands within the social media. One thing I noticed with Zelensky, which I was actually kind of a, I, if you've ever watched him in different languages, he doesn't just speak in that language. He'll actually change his whole body language to reflect the nation, the country, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way. He, so he creates unique content for each echo chamber, if you think about it. Yeah. And, and so you hit it exactly right is that on one hand, the platforms, again, whether we're talking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, you have two things at play. You've got one, the, the natural human inclination to find people that, um, agree with us, that look like us, that think like us. It's called homophily. Um, and that's true whether it's politics to, um, if you, and I feel sorry for you right now, are a Green Bay Packers fan. Um, you are drawn to the content that they put there. Um, and you, when they post something, you go, Oh, I like that. You know, I like the Packers too. 
I like the Democrats or Republicans too. Um, and so you're drawn to that. And then the second thing is the very business model, the algorithms push content that you are more likely to engage with because time on platform means more money, more clicks, more engagement means more money. And so it's those two things coming together that create exactly what you're talking about. And they can, again, they can be a force for good. Oh, my friends and family are doing ice bucket challenge. Ice bucket challenge is trending. Let's do it too. And that raises, you know, money for a good cause. Or it can be for something, you know, really pernicious um, and pushing us all into our little echo chambers. I think um, the, you know, to turn this a little bit more to, you know, what can we do about it? Um, you know, it's not all going away. Um, and so you need, you know, one, there's there's some absence of regulation in this space. I think like in the regular field of cybersecurity, Europe tends to be leading the way compared to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, that happened on um, liability and info sharing. Right. Same thing's going to be happening on cybersecurity. I mean, sorry, same thing's happening on social media. The second, though, is um, it's about the targets. And just like in cybersecurity, um, you need uh, awareness. Um, so if you're a corporation, you should not be solely looking for classic cyber threats. You should be looking for how are people going after my brand, um, on social media, because quite honestly, there's been multiple cases where the cost to a corporation has been greater from a social media attack than it's been from a, a ransomware attack. And so you need to be um, wargaming it, preparing it, all the threat awareness part of it. Um, but also it's, it's about you and I. And so the same thing in terms of, you know, hey, stop clicking that link. Um, same thing on the social media side. We need a little bit more training on how to be uh, called digital literacy. And again, it's, it's, it's not going to solve the problem, but it will create an ecosystem that's safer. Absolutely. I'm mindful of time, Peter, but I did want to give a quick uh, shout out to Useful Fiction. If we could close the podcast, I would, I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, what you're doing with Useful Fiction. Oh, thanks. So Useful Fiction um, is uh, both a methodology and a um, business. Uh, so the idea of Useful Fiction is um, whether you're trying to share a, a white paper, a threat report, a briefing to your board, um, something that's really important. Um, you got two tasks. You have one, which is, you know, how do I analyze? How do I understand this right. really important thing? But there's a second task that we don't pay enough attention to, which is how do I gain and hold the attention of my target audience yes. when there's so much else competing out there for right. mind and media space? Um, and so what we do is that um, we bring in the oldest communication technology of all, which is story. Um, we've been using story since, you know, we were gathered around a fire in a cave. Um, by contrast, uh, PowerPoint, um, PowerPoint started in 1987. Why do, why do we keep using that? Um, you know, our brain isn't tailored for it. And so, um, the idea of it is how do we blend nonfiction analysis, whatever is the important thing to that organization um, but share it through a scenario, share it through a story. Um, and, you know, a different way of thinking about it is that it's like what I do to my kids um, in the morning. I sneak fruit and veggies um, to them through a smoothie. 
Um, <laughs> it's the same thing, whether it's a board briefing or it's, it's your workforce. We, we take the kale, the threat report, the strategy report, the trend report, but we share it through story. And not only like the smoothie, they're more likely to consume it. It's also the science shows they're more likely to absorb it. Same thing with smoothies, same thing when you put the information in a, in a story. And so um, we've done this. Uh, it started out you know, bluntly as a little bit of a side hustle between myself and August Cole. Um, we had written together a book called um, Ghost Fleet that was a, a novel. Some people may be familiar with it. It was a novel, but it also shared real world issues about cyber threat, supply chain security, you name it. And um, it turned out to be the most influential work of our careers. I mean, it was, a, it, you know, it was it sold well, but more importantly, you know, we were asked to share its real world lessons um, everywhere from the White House to um, the, the Nobel Institute. Um, there were uh, three different government investigations launched to keep things that happened in our novel from coming true. Wow. And so we took that methodology and um, turned it into a business. And um, we've been at it a little over a year. It started out as a, you know, one would call it a side hustle. Mm -hmm. And now we're, um, we just signed our 43rd contract. Um, we've worked with organizations that range from um, NATO, U.S. Special Operations Command, British government um, to uh, a couple of Fortune 500s to a couple of nonprofits. And we basically work with them in turning, you know, whatever is their really important content um into something that people are more likely to engage with and people, it might be their board. It might be young lieutenants. Um, and then the other thing that we do is that we run training workshops on how to do, um, foresight and communication skills, um, more effectively. And same thing we've done them for, um, groups as small as 15 to groups as large as 200. And so we bring in a, um, a, a teaching team that ranges from, retired four-star generals to futurists to um, uh, best-selling um, authors, reporters to um, we've had people behind um, Hollywood projects like uh, Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, um, uh, Band of Brothers, you name it. And basically the team is all about um, helping that organization figure out Hey, what are the stories that we're not telling well right. and how do we better tell them? And so it's been, I mean, it's been a blast for me, um, to work on these different projects, you know, that have been on topics that range from defense to cyber, but trying to figure out how to tell them in a story. But then the other thing is, um, and you and I were joking about this. It's also, um, led to a little bit of, uh, um, growing up and angst of, you know, when you, and I, I think a lot of folks in your, your audience are, um, sharing in this of like, um, there's some really cool, interesting issues to work on. And then you also have the meetings like, okay, what's the company insurance policy right. going to be? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, that's fiction. And if people want to check it out, um, it's useful-fiction.com. So, so no longer a side hustle. Can I just hustle. say that's genius? Yes. It's a genius side hustle. I love it. No longer a side <laughs> hustle you. though when you're talking about insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and bringing in four-star generals and briefing 200 people. <laughs> That's awesome that you've taken what you love to do and you've now, you know, gone beyond just being a perfect writer and, you know, helping organizations, to, you know, tell stories and, and solve problems. Yeah. Oh, I, again, I, I appreciate you having me on um, and just a fun conversation to share about these issues. So thank you so much. 
Wonderful. And, and thank you again, Peter. Really appreciate your time and, and insights. And I, I just, I love everything that you're involved with. It's, it's so needed right now. So thank you because we need more people out there doing something about it uh, versus just kind of, you know, talking about it. So thank you for the action. I love it. And to all of our listeners, thanks again for joining us this week. And until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 